Wow, thank you. Um, thanks, Frank and Pam, for, for sharing that. Um, yeah, even in those few minutes, um, my heart was moving. After re- just hearing that verse, uh, dear children, let's not love with uh, words or tongue, but in action and in truth. Um, yeah, if you felt, man, if you felt moved and, and, and stirred and convicted, it's not because this is like a humanitarian, it is a humanitarian crisis and, a, and an issue, but um, it's the heart of God within us also. It's, you're made in the image of God. He's your father, and we, we feel these things. If you know God, uh, you feel um, his heart a little bit for uh, orphans and for forgotten people and for those who are, are vulnerable. And so I'd really encourage you, if you, yeah, just to have that, that, that sense in which, man, um, I don't think I can do it because I don't, how, what is it a month? $34. I don't have $34 a month. Um, get together with a friend of yours and, and, and pool money together. Um, I'm sure for, for, for many of us, we could. We could make it work if we gave up a few of those lattes on the way to work or on the way to school. Um, we can make it work. But, um, yeah, take a stop by the table, ask questions, and, uh, yeah, let's really get in, engaged in the heart of God. And, and through this, uh, I believe, uh, this is not what it means to know me, that we'll know God in deeper ways as we experience his heart uh, for the orphans around the world. So can you turn to someone and say, let's live out our faith. Can you do that? Let's live out our faith. <laughs> this, uh, this week I was talking with a friend of mine, one of my good friends, and he said, hey, uh, pray for me tomorrow. I'm going to the cardiologist. That's the heart specialist. Uh, because he was feeling these, these weird pains within his chest, within his heart. And... Uh, um, I was like, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll do that. He's got to get some tests done, get some x-rays, look at what's going on. Um, yeah, just underneath the, the surface of, of what, you know, what he knows and what he feels. And so I said to him, just kind of offhand, I said, hey, you get regular checkups, right? You go get your physical and, and go see your doctor every year. And he's like, nah, dude, I haven't been to the doctor in 10 years. <laughs> That's what he said, 10 years. So I thought about it. I said, he's a doctor himself, for one. He's got great medical insurance, um, he's got money, he's got time to go see a doctor, but for whatever reason, he doesn't go. And I, I thought about, like, why, why wouldn't you go to the doctor? Like, some people would kill to have the kind of health insurance and to have your flexibility and to have your financial standing to go see a doctor, but you, for some reason, don't do it. I, I would imagine that there's a bunch of people like that uh, within our congregation today, that you have the opportunity, have the means and resources and time and all that stuff to go see the doctor, but you haven't been in like 10 years. wonder why. Why don't you? I think for, for many of us, it's like we'd say, oh, I, I'm fine. Like everything is fine. But if we're honest with ourselves, I think the reason why a good many of us would be hesitant to go is because we're afraid of what we might find out. Because we're going to realize and get those test results back. We're going to get the x-ray that looks beneath the surface. And we're going to see things that we don't want to see. And quite frankly, we'd rather live the way we're living and not know than to know what's going on and change our lives. What is it that ultimately leads a person then to go see the doctor to get a scope beneath the surface? It's typically it requires pain in order for that to happen. 
when the pain is great enough and we realize there's something is not right underneath the surface, I need to go and get this checked out, that's usually when we'll go. As we've been talking about emotionally healthy spirituality, it is a call to go deeper and deeper and deeper than many of us have gone before in our spiritual journey. And some of you, as we talk about this, are tempted, well, some of you, I think, are, are, are really you're ready to jump in. You're like, yeah, you know what? My em- I've, I'm an emotional infant right now. My life is jacked up. I've got pain all around. I need to go. Let's go. Let's journey into a place of wholeness. Others of you may be feeling really hesitant to go underneath the surface because you're afraid of what you're going to see, and you're waiting and waiting and waiting. Can I submit to you a proposal or, or maybe a suggestion? What if we didn't wait until we started feeling the pain inside? What if we didn't wait until the implosion happened? What if we didn't wait until we were on Fox News or or on Channel 9 News or whatever it is because something exploded in our lives? What if we didn't wait for the pain and we preemptively decided to see what's going on so that we could actually move towards health? What if we believed that God has so much more in store for you than the life that you're living right now. What we're going to look at today is we're going to begin this journey towards emotionally healthy spirituality, a journey towards wholeness by looking at, well, we're going to look at the perfect, perfect example of what God looked like. If God were to walk on earth, he was Jesus. He did walk on earth. He was Jesus. He is Jesus. But he's also the perfect example of what a human being looked like, emotionally healthy spirituality through and through. And what I want to do today is I want to look at Jesus' life as we begin this journey towards wholeness by looking at how aware of himself he was. Because in order for us to really know God, this is St. Augustine to to, to John Calvin, to Meister Eckhart, to Teresa of of Avila, countless uh, uh, theologians and church fathers and mothers have said the same thing. In order for us to really know God, we have to know ourselves. In order to know how much we need the mercy of God and the grace of God, we need to know the depth of our sin. We need to know ourselves deeply in order for us to, to know God. And so what I want to do is show how self-aware Jesus was. See, a lot of us are very self-conscious, but we're not very self-aware. Like we don't really know ourselves very well beneath the surface. This is called emotional immaturity or unhealth or imbalance. What I want to do is help us to go beneath uh, by looking at Jesus during certain moments of his life. We're going to start uh, with Mark chapter 14. Mark chapter 14, uh, we're going to look at verses uh, 32 through 36. We're going to look at Jesus at the end of his life um, to see him after he's lived his 33 and a half years and get to this point in his life where he is aware deeply of himself. And then we're going to look at a couple other passages from the beginning of his ministry. But in uh, Mark chapter 14, verses 32 through 36, we see Jesus at the end of his life, the last night of his life. And we're going to see that Jesus was not afraid to open up the hood and look underneath and to see what's going on. He wasn't afraid to get the x-ray. He wasn't afraid to see what's going on beneath the surface of his heart. Mark 14, uh, verse 32. This is God's word. It says, they went to a place, this is Jesus and his disciples, called Gethsemane, and Jesus said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James, and John along with him, and he began to be deeply distressed And troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he said to them. 
stay here and keep watch. Going a little farther, so going farther from the three, he fell to the ground and prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. This is God's word. So what do we see? Jesus, Garden of Gethsemane, night of sorrow, last moments of his life, right? Just several hours later, come morning, about 9 o'clock, he would be crucified on a cross. This is the night before, after his last supper with his disciples. What do we see about Jesus? What do we see about his understanding of himself? And what do we see about helping us than to go beneath the surface. Here's the first thing, very simple. The journey to wholeness begins, okay, by looking beneath the surface, okay? Journey to wholeness begins by looking beneath the surface. Remember, we've talked about this in the past few weeks. 10% of us is what everybody sees, okay? But it's 90% of us that people don't see, that's beneath the surface. Jesus was fully aware of what's going on beneath the surface, 90% of who he was, and that was integrated into one whole person. So, Here's a challenge for us. A lot of us, most of us, the great majority, I can't think of a single person who's not like this, but there's a disconnect between our outsides and our insides. There's a disconnect between what we show and what we're really feeling inside. Some of the simplest ways to know is when you ask somebody, you haven't seen somebody for a week, you haven't seen somebody for a few weeks, and you say, how are you doing? The default answer for most of us is, Things are good, or I'm fine, or hey, I'm cool, chilling, everything is good. Whatever it is that you might say in response to pleasantries that you give back, but whether you know it or not, or whether you're intentional about it or not, the reality is that for many of us beneath the surface, everything is not really that fine. There's, there's anger, there's sadness, there's depression, there's fear, there's anxiety, there's this crippling and debilitating sense of loss, whatever it is that we're feeling, but a lot of times we just say we're doing Okay, what we see here is Jesus, in the, just at the end of his life, deeply in touch with his emotions. The challenge for us, one, is we have an improper view of our emotions because we've, I don't know, maybe it's, perhaps it's because of the denomination that you grow up in. Some say that certain denominations are called the frozen chosen, that we have no emotion whatsoever. We just go through life like zombies or like Mr. Spock or like goodwill from goodwill hunting. We have zero emotion. We don't feel anything because we've been taught that certain emotions are not acceptable for us to feel. Don't we feel that, don't we feel that way with at least emotions like sadness or emotions like anger? People tell us you're not supposed to be sad. You're not supposed to be angry. And so what do we do with these things? We stuff them deep inside. We hide these emotions. We push them deeper and deeper and deeper. And maybe at a certain point, anger comes out or sadness comes out. You're at a funeral and these things start coming out and people tell you, oh, you shouldn't feel like that. You shouldn't act like that because you're a Christian. Christians are people of hope. We're people of joy. We don't get sad. We don't get depressed. We don't get angry. And so we, because we're told we shouldn't feel that way, we think we don't feel that way. And we push these things deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper. And maybe some of you have gotten to the point in your life where you can't feel anything. You just feel numb. Or maybe you feel numb because you've experienced a lot of these emotions and you said, I don't want to feel these things anymore. I don't want to be sad all the time. I don't want to hear my parents fighting all the time. I don't want to hear people tell me that I'm worthless. And so you harden your heart as your defense mechanism so that you're no longer able to feel anything. So when other people are being moved by certain movies or moved by certain songs or moved by certain experiences, uh, you're not. You're just stone cold. No emotion. Always at equilibrium. 
Sometimes we don't feel anything because we don't feel like we have the permission to feel those things. And so we stifle these things. We shut these things down. What about Jesus? What about Jesus? Look at this. It says in verse 33, he began to be distressed and troubled. If that wasn't enough, okay, from the inside out, this is what he says. He says, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Think about this. If you talk to someone after service today and you said, hey, how are you doing? I haven't seen you for a while. And they said to you, I, oh my gosh, I am overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. I feel like, man, I'm so sad. I'm so sorrowful. I feel like I'm going to die. What might you say to that person? Right, you would probably say, you're not supposed to feel that way. Okay, you're a Christian. You have God on your side. If God is for you, who can be against you? And we stifle these things. We don't think we're allowed to feel these things. But Jesus full on feels them. The first part of understanding what's going on beneath the surface is you have to know what you feel. You have to know what's going on inside. Because the thing, yeah, emotions are not everything. Okay, they're not everything. We saw that two weeks ago. We saw that we're uh, to love the Lord our God with all our heart, all our soul, all our mind, all our strength, and to love our neighbor as ourselves. We're spiritual, emotional, mental, physical, uh, social beings, all of these things. But it does not mean we are not emotional. It means we are emotional, but that's only, that's only a part of who we are. So we don't follow our emotions and everything, but our emotions have been given to us as a powerful indication of something that's going on beneath the hood of our engine, of our cars, of our bodies. In other words, emotions are one of the great gifts of God to tell you what's going on inside of your heart. And one of the best ways for you to get beneath the surface is to ask yourself, what am I feeling? And what are you feeling? Jesus says, I'm overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. And our feelings, as often has been said, a powerful gift of God as an indicator, as a gift to show us who we are and what's going on. I've, I've talked to people sometimes, uh, oh my gosh, hey, can you, uh, can you pray for me because I like, this, I like this girl and I've prayed that these feelings would go away and they're not going away. I, I'm jealous of this person. Every time they walk into the room, I get so angry, I get so jealous, I can't even stand to look at them. I get so angry when I think about this thing, and, 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 and I hate it, and I pray to God that he would remove the anger, remove the jealousy, remove the pride, remove all of these things, but he hasn't removed them. Why not? Why doesn't God remove them? Can I tell you why? Because these emotions are a gift of God to help you see what's going on beneath the surface. The reason God doesn't change your emotions is because God wants to change your life. And change your heart, not at a surface level, but at a deep level. That's why you constantly get angry. That anger is telling you that you got issues beneath the surface. God's not going to just take that away. you got to find out what's going on. The reason why you're always insecure, always fearful, there's something going on. God doesn't just take that away. Why are you always working so hard, always anxious, always need to prove yourself? What's going on beneath the surface? Why doesn't God just take that away? Because it's a gift to teach you, to show you, to reveal something to you. Because when you, when you can access that, then God's going to not change your emotion. He wants to change your life. See, Jesus, here's the thing, doesn't just know what he feels. He knows why he feels it too. And that's the second part of this. To understand, not only, to go beneath the surface, you need to know what you feel and why. Why does Jesus feel overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death? He says, Abba, Father, everything is possible. Take this cup from me. 
Well, of course Jesus will be overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. He's going to die tomorrow. Of course he is. But it's not just to know what you feel. Why do you feel? There, uh, we would all in the same situation be overwhelmed with sorrow because one, uh, I don't know, maybe because I don't want to die. Or maybe because I don't want to feel pain. Or maybe because I haven't said goodbye to my loved one. For whatever reason, we would feel the same way that Jesus does here. But Jesus goes beneath the surface. You would think, oh, that's a no-brainer Jesus feels that way. But he knows why he does. It's not because of death. It's not because he hasn't said his farewell. It's not because of any of these other reasons. He's sorrowful because of the cup of the wrath of God. He's, why does he feel this way? Because he's fearing the separation from his father that comes when he drinks the cup of God's wrath. See, to go beneath the surface, guys, we have to know not only what we feel, but we have to know why we feel these things. Okay, why do we feel these things? You know a person is properly alive. You know a person is healthy when they can feel the full range of emotions. I said this before. Jesus here, in, in, in the fullness of emotional health, he says, I'm overwhelmed with sorrow. Being healthy emotionally does not mean you're always happy. Understand this, being healthy, being alive spiritually doesn't mean you're always happy. It means you feel the appropriate emotion at the appropriate time. That means there are times where you shouldn't feel happy. Okay, when your, your best friend gets sick, you shouldn't be like, oh my gosh, because I've got Jesus, everything is great, everything is awesome, life is beautiful. No, you should feel sad when there's times you should feel sad. That's why, Jesus, that's why Paul says we should mourn with those who mourn. There's a time for us to feel sad. Sometimes we're like, oh, something is wrong with me. Why? What's wrong with you? Oh, I'm just feeling so depressed. Why are you feeling depressed? Oh, because my, you know, my cat just died. That's not depression. Okay, that's called being sad. To understand this, this is huge because we, we, we talk about everything being depression and some of us really do have clinical depression. That's a real thing. But some of you are throwing out the word depression when what you're really feeling is you're just sad. And that's normal. It's normal to be sad. It's normal to be sad when you get hurt. It's normal to be sad when your kid is getting picked on. It's normal to be sad when you go through a difficult relationship. That's not depression. That's not wrong. That's normal. It means you're alive. It means you're emotionally healthy if you can feel those things in its proper way. It's when you, you're supposed to be happy, you feel happy. When, you feel, when some injustice is being done, you feel angry. It's not to be happy in the midst of everything. That's not emotional health. See, Jesus was healthy, and he's calling us to an emotional health, but it comes by not just praying everything away, the 10%, but by going beneath the surface to really seeing what's going on. Why are you feeling this way? What are you feeling? What's going on beneath the surface? I remember being in college, and I, I was um, listening to a conversation where there's this young college um, young man, and he was talking with, with an older uh, brother in our campus ministry. And he said, you know, I, I really like this girl. And he's basically looking for permission to ask this girl out, uh, even though part of him felt like it wasn't the right thing to do. And so he said, yeah, you know, I like this girl. And, and he's talking about how he's gotten to know her. And then he said, this is what he said. He said, I've never felt this way about a girl before in my life. And then he said, I don't know if that means anything, but that's just how I feel. And the older brother, he started laughing. And he said, of course that means something. We just don't know what that means, is what he said. I thought that was so deeply profound. 
why, why, do you, why have you never felt like this before? Well, maybe it be, could be because no one's ever given you attention, and she is giving you attention, and therefore you've never felt that way about someone before. Maybe you feel like you're never going to get a girlfriend, and this is the only opportunity you think you have. That's why you never feel that way. Maybe because you've, you're, you're homesick, you miss your mom, and she reminds you of your mom. She looks like your mom. She smells like your mom. She dresses like your mom, and that's why you've never felt like this before. There are a million different reasons why you might feel like this the way you've known that no woman has ever made you feel before. That's not enough to say, I feel it. Here's the thing. Unless we feel these things, some of us have shut these things down. You know, the person is not healthy physically. Right? Leprosy, one of the worst diseases of Jesus' time. What was so crippling about it, literally and figuratively, was that the nerves would die so that you would no longer be able to feel anything. And when you don't feel anything, things like this would happen. They would fall into the fire, but they would not feel the fire. And so their hands would fall off. They would hit themselves with, 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 with hard, unsharp objects. They wouldn't feel any pain. And so they would lose their limbs and lose their digits and lose body parts. That was just the way it would happen. And you looked at them and they say, the inability to feel tells us that something is not right with them. And some of you have been told that to be at emotional equilibrium all the time, to never get high and to never get low, is a mark of maturity. They told you a lie. Because that's not what we see in Jesus. It's not what we see in him. To be able to feel those things and then to look beneath the surface. Why do I feel this way? And what's going on inside of me? I remember hearing about this lady who was, um, she, was a, uh, she was a working, she was a businesswoman. And she was climbing pretty high up the corporate ladder. But she said every time she got promoted, she would get recommended by all the people around her. They would say, she's awesome, she's the best one for the job. And everyone would recognize her gifts, her skill, her expertise. And she would get promoted and promoted and promoted. But with each step up the ladder she got, she began to feel more and more anxious and insecure, especially when she had to give a presentation or give a briefing in front of uh, high-powered men. And she always felt that way. And so um, people said, well, it's normal to feel anxious when you're in positions of power and you need to talk to people in power. But she said, no, but this is not a normal kind of anxiety. So what do you think is, is driving that? What do you think is, is behind it? And after conversations, she, she said this, like, really insightful thing. She said, I, I feel like... I'm a little girl in the midst of these powerful uh, corporate board members. They said, can you, can you think of when you first felt this way? And this is what she said. She said, my dad was the CEO of a rather large company. And he would have gatherings in our home and in the living room. And there would be high-powered men who would sit around our parlor, and they would ask me to bring them drinks. And so I'd bring them drinks, and I would serve it to them, and I would want to sit with my dad. But then either dad or somebody else would say, okay, we're about to have grown-up talk now. This is not a place for little girls to be, pretty little girls like you, so you can run along now. And so as much as she wanted to be there with those people, she was told that she didn't belong. Pretty little girls need to run along now. You don't belong here. 
And as she grew older, this is what she began replaying in her mind, that as she's hanging out with these corporate CEOs and CFOs and CIOs and whatever ICOs you can think of, as she's hanging out with people like that, yeah, you're going to feel anxious, but why are you feeling anxious? It's not because she wasn't qualified. It's not because she didn't know her stuff. It's not because she wasn't good enough. It's because deep in her heart, there were tapes that were playing that said, little girls don't belong here. And she was told to run along. Why do you feel the things that you feel in your heart? If you lift up the cover beneath the surface, why do you feel anxious in the company of certain kinds of people? Why do you have such a fear of missing out? Why is FOMO such a big thing for you? Like, what do you feel like you're missing out on? What are you looking to those people to give you? What sense of validation and meaning? Why do you get so jealous or get so annoyed by certain kinds of people? It's that, and, and, and they all, it, they fit the description to a T. Why, why did that one comment that she made in that large group or in that small group or in house church or in our SNF small group, why did what she say why did that bother me so much? Why could I not overcome that? Why am I unable to stop X, Y, Z feelings in my life? Because, guys, here's the thing. You can know what you feel, and you can pray those things away, but a lot of times these 10% feelings are hiding something much deeper beneath the surface. And we begin to realize these things. We can really... We can go deep and let God change us from the inside out. It's not surface-level change when we begin to see these things. Because remember Jesus, it wasn't just for himself. When he had conversations with people, he was always trying to get beneath the surface. Here's a woman at a well during the hottest time of the day. He rolls up to her and he says, hey, what are you doing here? He said, I just come to get water. He says, give me some of that water. You don't have a bucket to draw with. And so they begin talking, begin having this conversation. And she tries to turn it to worship because she wants to keep it on the surface. But Jesus wants to get beneath the surface. He says, hey, um, go call your husband. Go call your husband. I don't have a husband. You're right. You don't have a husband. You're shacking up with a guy and you've had many other husbands. She wants to keep it on the surface, but he wants to get beneath the surface. Why? Why are you here at the heat of the day? What's your shame all about? Why do you keep going to these men? Why do you keep turning the same well? Why do you keep drinking from unsatisfying waters? Until finally at the surface he could bring transformation from the inside out. Her life was never the same again. Because for some of us, we're just trying to change the outside. Just putting window dressing, changing that around when beneath the surface God is giving you these feelings, emotions, because there's things that he wants you to see in order that he could change from the, uh, not from the surface, but from beneath the surface. The first thing, this journey to wholeness, it begins by us looking beneath the surface. That's the first thing we see. How do we look? How did Jesus look beneath the surface then? The second thing that we see is that the journey to wholeness makes frequent stops in solitary places. Okay, what does that mean? At the end of Jesus' life, okay, Jesus comes to a place where he's alone. I mean, I think this is, this is brilliant humanity here. What do you do? What do you do on the worst night of your life, on the hardest night of your life, on the, 
on the most difficult time of your life, Jesus says, I'm going to be with my three friends. He brings his three friends, and he shares his sorrow with them. But then going a little bit further, he gets alone to be with God. Two things that you need in your time of deepest need is you need to be alone with God, and you need people who are stones throw away. That's what Jesus is showing us. Jesus goes to a solitary place at the end of his life, but what we also see, okay, what we've got to understand, if you see something, okay, you, you've heard this before, if you see something once, it's chance. If you see something twice, it's coincidence. If you see something three times, it's a pattern. Throughout Jesus' life, you will see him constantly going to these solitary places. Look in Mark chapter 1. I'm going to read Mark chapter 1, uh, verses 9, uh, verses 9 through, through 13. It says, at that time, this is Jesus, is 30 years old. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. As Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, you are my son whom I love, with you I am well pleased. At once the Spirit sent him out into the desert, and he was in the desert 40 days. Being tempted by Satan, he was with the wild animals, and angels attended him. So I'm going to get to this in, in, in just one second. I'm going to bracket this off. How do we, how do we get beneath the surface? Okay, there are two things that we see Jesus doing here, very important disciplines that are often forgotten in our day, uh, and, and, and for cultural reasons, spiritual reasons, a bunch of reasons, we, we've done this. But the first thing we see Jesus doing is he's fasting. One of the best ways that you can look beneath the surface of your heart is through the discipline of fasting. Okay, some of you are going through a Daniel fast. Uh, Jesus was not Daniel fasting. He was fasting fasting. It means he ate nothing. When you eat food, okay, this is, this is just simple uh, theology, a theology of food in, in, in 20 seconds. Why did God give us food? The purpose of food was that we'd eat and drink for the glory of God. What does that mean? We eat, we get strong, we can live out his purposes. We eat, we get strong, we can serve him in the world. We eat, uh, we thank God, we love the giver as we recognize that he's the one who gave us all this food. This is how we eat to the glory of God. We eat to the glory of God when we use food to bring people around us so that we can build relationships and fellowship so that we can help people grow in Christ or uh, come to know Christ. This is a theology of food. Jesus, I'm sorry, Paul said, 1 Corinthians 10, 31, eat and drink to the glory of God. But can we be honest? How many of us eat and drink in such a way that when people look at us eating and drinking, they see God's glory? in us. They see, wow, God is awesome in this place. Maybe some of you do. Maybe some of you do. But I'll tell you ways that we don't. When we use food at all-you-can-eat buffets, and we eat and we eat, we're like, oh my gosh, I'm so full, but I'm going to eat more and more and more and more and more. Okay? That's called gluttony. That is not eating to the glory of God. In fact, the ancients said it's one of seven deadly sins that you can engage in excess of those things. Here's another, here's another way we use food. When you're depressed, I'm just going to eat something. When you're sad, let's just, let's just go eat. Hey, let's go eat. Why do you want to eat? Oh, I'm, just, just, I'm, I'm just bored. I'm just bored. And so you eat. How many times have you seen a movie or a TV show where a girl gets dumped by her boyfriend or, or, or yeah, gets dropped by some guy she likes and she's in, in, the, in a dark room watching TV, crying in her pajamas with her pigtails up and she's eating Buckets of ice cream, right? Because she's eating to cover something. And can I tell you, can I? I think in our culture, we do this a lot. 
We eat not in moderation to the glory of God, but we eat in such a way that it numbs our hearts from feeling what we ought to be feeling inside. So here's what fasting does, and maybe you've experienced this. Anytime you've done a fast, you did it for 201, you did it for Daniel fast, you did it for Lent, whatever it is, you spend time taking away the food. One of the things that it will do is it will begin to uncover things in your life, things that you never knew existed. You're like, oh my gosh, why am I being like this? And here's the answer that culture gives. You're just hangry. Why are you so angry? Oh, she hasn't eaten for two hours, right? Or he, hasn't eat, he didn't eat breakfast today. Could it be that instead of you and I being angry because we're hungry, the reality is that there's a deep-rooted anger within us that we've never seen and never dealt with and never explored that we're using food to cover up. Or I just feel, I just feel so uh, self-righteous as I'm fasting. And maybe that's always been there. And it's just coming out in greater measure because you've removed the trappings and, the, and you've stripped away the surface and you can begin to look underneath. Maybe you realize as you're not eating, you're really sad. You're like, why do I feel this way? It's because I need my food. I need my coffee. See, fasting has a way of peeling back the layers so that we could really begin to see what's going on beneath the surface. It's no accident that we're going through a Daniel fast as we talk about introspection and as we dive deeper and deeper and deeper so that we can be changed, so that we can see. The other thing that's necessary in order for us to get beneath the surface, um, it says Jesus, uh, in verse, verse 12, at once the Spirit sent Jesus out into the desert, and he was in the desert 40 days. We will see this idea of the desert often throughout Mark's gospel, throughout, throughout all the gospels. Desert doesn't mean a place where there's only sand and there's like a cactus every now and then. That's not what he's talking about. Desert, literally, this is a Greek word called the eremon, the eremon, which literally means the lonely place, the isolated place, the deserted place, the solitary place. See, Jesus was constantly going to the solitary place, constantly going to be alone. Maybe some of you are not aware of what's going on beneath the surface because you can't bear to be alone. See, Jesus was constantly going to this place. In fact, first six chapters of Mark, we see it seven times. He was constantly going. Luke 5, 16, Jesus often withdrew to the solitary places. I'm just going to say this up front. If we want deep transformation, we need to let God take us to the solitary places, to places of solitude. One, because it shows us what's going on beneath the surface. Our, our hearts, our lives are like, it's like a cup of water, and you can see what's going on on the outside. You can pour out what's going on on the inside, and you can see, well, there's water in this. But the reality is that our lives are, are like a, a cup, and when we're solitude, in stillness, in silence, the cup rests, and you can see what's inside. But when life gets busy, 
and you start hurrying around and you start doing this and that, what you do is you begin to shake this cup up and you begin to shake the cup up. And what do you do with iced tea or lemonade or with Kool-Aid or high C when you put that mix in and you shake it up? You can't often tell what it is. You can't separate one thing from the other. And what we're doing is we're constantly shaking this up, shaking this up so that we don't know what's going on inside. Only when we let it rest and let the sediment settle can we actually see what's lying beneath the surface. But a lot of us are afraid to go there, aren't we? And we're afraid to see because we're afraid to see the demons and the stuff of our past and the stuff of our lives and the things that we don't want to see, the things that God is wanting us to see. One of my, one of my good friends, he was, he was and is a pastor. I'm out in the West Coast now. But I remember he would say, as we were talking about silence and solitude, he said, I, I, don't, ever, I don't ever put my head on my pillow um, unless I'm dead tired. Because when I put my head on my pillow and thoughts come to my mind, I despise the thoughts that come to me. I despise the person that I am. And so what he said was, I read and read and read until my eyes get so heavy that I cannot think, and then I put my head on my pillow to fall asleep. Maybe some of you feel that way. What would it look like? This is what Blaise Pascal said. He said the majority... The majority of the problems in the world come from man's inability to sit silently in a room for one hour. That's what he said. Not just man's, but woman's. The majority of the problems in the world, says Blaise Pascal, come from our inability to sit in silence alone in a room for an hour. What would you see if you let the sediment settle in your heart? Because, you see, something else begins to happen. Not only do we become self-aware in that place. This is, this is huge. Not only do we become self-aware in the place of solitude, but here a lot of people think, and this is Dallas Willard kind of made this thought clear to people, a lot of people think that in fasting and in solitude, oh, poor Jesus, 40 days he's been in this place, he is so weak. Physically, absolutely, he was weakened in that place. But what Dallas Willard says is there was no time when he was more spiritually powerful than in this moment. And he constantly went to these solitary places. At the end of this chapter, it says in chapter 1, verse 35, um, you don't have to turn there, but I'll read it. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to the Aramon, a solitary place where he prayed. Listen to this. He's praying. Simon and his companions went to look for him, and when they found him, they said, everyone's looking for you. Jesus said, let's go somewhere else to the nearby villages so I can preach there also. That is why I've come. Here's what, here's what I think as I connect these two pieces together. From one solitary place 
to another solitary place. Immediately after coming from these solitary places, what ends up happening is that Jesus gets tempted once by Satan and once by his disciples to go here, to be something that you're not, and both times Jesus says no. Let me, let me show you what this looks like. The first temptation, Jesus has been fasting. He's in solitude. He's heard from the Father. This is who you are. You're my son whom I love with you. I'm well pleased. Jesus hears this, and then he goes into the desert place. He goes into the Aramon where for 40 days he fasts and Satan tempts him. What is the first temptation? Turn uh, stone to bread. Here's a temptation. Jesus for 30 years has been doing nothing but carpentry. He's come to be the Messiah, and here's what the devil is saying. Jesus, look at you. You're 30 years old. You've done nothing in your life. You've made a few tables. You've made some chairs. You've done some fine craftsmanship. But nobody knows who you are. Do something now. Be significant. Be significant. People are longing for bread. There are hungry people all around. Do something significant. The temptation that comes to us is to find our identity in our significance and what we can do. Do something. Do something, Jesus. The second temptation was, hey, if you bow down to me, all these kingdoms of the world I'll give to you. The second temptation is, hey, be seen. Be seen. People will see you. People will notice you if you have all of these things. And that's the lie of this world also. If you have the right possessions, if you've got the Nintendo Switch, if you've got this certain kind of car, if you've got these clothes, if you've got this uh, relationship status, if you've got these things, then people will see you. You just got to get the right thing. Perform on social media. Perform on your TikTok. Be beautiful. Be handsome. Be something. Be seen. And then you'll be somebody. That's what the world tells us. And Jesus says, no, I don't want that. The third thing he says... Throw yourself down from here. Throw yourself down from here. God will catch you. Be someone. Be someone. Again, you're nobody. You're just a carpenter from Galilee. No one knows you. You're nobody. Be somebody. Do something crazy. And in that place of seeming weakness, the Aramon was Jesus' place of power. He said, I don't need those things. I don't need those things. In the next section, he goes to a solitary place. The crowds are coming. They can, Jesus, don't make you Messiah right now. Be seen, be significant, be someone. Jesus says, let's go somewhere else. Because you see, something is powerful, powerful is happening when you go to the solitary place. Not only do you know yourself, but there are three things that Jesus grew in in the solitary place. He grew in knowing who he was. He grew in knowing what his mission was. And he grew in the spiritual power to be able to say no to the wrong things and say yes to the right things. He knew himself that I am beloved of God. I am a child dearly loved by God. He's pleased with me. I don't need Satan to give the world to give me these things. I don't need people's approval to be anything. I am all these things because of what God says about me already. I don't need a relationship. I don't need a, a million followers. I don't need all of these things. I don't need money. I don't need popularity. I have everything that I need. In my Father's love. He knew who he was. He knew his mission. Therefore, he knew, I'm not going to be deterred from this mission. He knew what he was doing, and so therefore, he could say no to the wrong things and say yes to the right things. Could it be that the reason why you have a hard time saying no, the reason why you don't know what you're doing with your life, 
the reason why. You don't know who you are, and so you're going this way and that way, this way and that way, being all things to all people, not to save them, but in order to build your reputation, to be someone, to be significant, to be seen. Could it be that the reason you're like that, running around so busy, is because you're not willing to go into the Aramon, this place of power, this solitary, lonely place where you can encounter God and be filled with his power to be changed from the inside out. See, if we're, if we're looking for these things, here's how the world is going to sell it to us. They're going to say, you just got to be busy. Be busy. Be busy. Busy people have the hardest time going into the solitary place. One, because we're, we're too busy to make the time. Two, because there's a reason we're so busy. We haven't found our center in Christ. We think we have. We say we have, but we haven't. Not if we're always running around. Always busy. The world tells us busyness means you're someone, you're seen, you're significant. You know, Valentine's Day is coming up, probably going to be unromantic for those of us who are Daniel fasting, (laughs) who go to some place to eat vegetables. (laughs) Go to Valentine's Day, you don't go to a store, you don't go to a restaurant where the chef is just sitting down doing nothing, checking his social media feed, taking a nap. You want to see him busy. Because we think busyness means he's important. Busyness means he's significant. Busyness means he's good at doing his things. You don't go to a barber shop where the barber's sleeping in the haircutting chair. <laughs> you want to see that place packed and lines out the door because that's what we think it means to be significant. Jesus understood differently. It's not about being busy. We don't find our significance, our, our self in those things. We can be still. What's the purpose of that solitude? Psalm 46.10 tells us, be still. Why? (laughs) What will happen if I'm still? Be still and know that I am God. That's what he says. Like you will know God when you come to that Aramon place, that solitary place, that isolated place, that deserted place, that lonely place. For some of you who are going through the Daniel fast, let's get there. Let's go there. Let's let God change us from the inside out. For those of you who are not, that's fine. But let's set aside time to do that because when you go to those places, God will meet you there. Do you understand something, guys? God doesn't want something from you. That's not his aim. He owns everything. He owns you and me. He owns us. He doesn't want something from us. He wants something for you. Do you understand that? Don't mistake that. He's not trying to get into your pocket. He's not trying to mess with you, not trying to ruin your life. He doesn't want something from you. Mainly, he wants something for you. He says, when you go to that place, I'll meet you there. I'll meet you there. I'll change you. You don't have to live this way. You don't have to live the way that you're living. Let me get beneath the surface. Let me change you from the inside out. There's a better way of doing it. And constantly, that's where God meets his people. It's where he met David. It's where he met Moses. It's where he met... Uh, Joshua. It's where David was willing to say, why so anxious, my soul? Why so downcast, oh, my soul? Why so anxious within me? He's willing to go to those places, and that's where God met him. Because there's no place Jesus will not go to meet you if you're willing to be changed. From one solitary place to another to another until the final place he went in order to show you that you don't need to find your significance in this world. He went to a cross where he was nailed and beaten and mocked and spit upon. Why? 
did you do that? Jesus became a nobody in the eyes of the world in order that in seeing his love for you, you can know that you are somebody to him, that you are significant, that you're seen by him even when you're in the desert place and nobody's around. He meets you in those places so that you could hear the Father say of you, you are my son, you are my daughter, whom I love with you. I'm well pleased. You don't need to earn it. You don't need to busy yourself. You don't need to fight for it. You don't need to prove yourself. You've got it. You've got it already. Now live out of that reality. The journey to wholeness begins by looking beneath the surface. You willing to go there? Because if you do, the hope and the promise of God is that there will be change from the inside out, that he will transform us, and that our lives won't be the same for the better. Let's pray. Can we spend a, a minute right now just practicing a moment of stillness and solitude and silence? Just do that for a minute. Just let the sediment settle in your heart so that you can see what's going on. I believe with all of my heart that prayer is the air that we breathe, but sometimes we pray over our feelings so that we don't know what's going on beneath the surface. There are moments of solitude and stillness apart from prayer that God invites us to. Can we do that and just let ourselves sit in that place? And then as you begin to see what's going on beneath the surface, maybe quietly in your heart, you can pray that to the Lord. Say, Lord, I want to be changed, not from the surface, not just doing things the right way on the outside, but I want to be changed from the inside out. Let's pray. Let's wait in solitude and silence. Let's meet God. This is the place of power, the Aramon, where Jesus met his father. We meet our father here too. Let's spend a minute doing that, and then I'll pray for us. Father in heaven, as we come to you today, as we dare to let ourselves be still, silent, alone with you, just a flood of thoughts begin to come to our minds, and we want to push pause, we want to run away, we want to dive into the busyness of activity. We want to be with our friends so that these voices would quiet down. Maybe some of us are like that. Maybe others of us, we're struggling to really feel anything at all. We don't know what we think. We don't know what we feel. We just feel so distant from the core. Feel so distant from our hearts. Others of us, as we begin to let our hearts be revealed, 
to us. Begin to realize that there's things from years past that have been buried down. Things that we don't want to, we didn't want to deal with, we don't want to deal with. Things that we have been running all these years away from. But running never brought healing. Jesus did. Father, wherever we are in this place, Lord, let this move from being a message that we hear to being a message that transforms our lives as we follow you into the Aramon, those quiet, lonely, solitary places. Not a place of weakness, but a place of power. We begin to really change by knowing ourselves. Help us. We need you. We need you, Father. Be gentle as you lead us through those places. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.